Quantum computing is coming ever closer to real-life use, and the Defense Department wants to be ready. The Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency has contracted with three companies to build quantum computers. The prototypes should take about three years. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr got more from DARPA Program Manager Dr. Joe Altapeter. It turns out that not all quantum computers are created equal. They're they're very different from each other. I think the kinds of quantum computers that we're interested in uh, in this US2QC program, which I think is the, the one you're interested in, are really, they're called fault-tolerant quantum computers. So a lot of the quantum computers, that all of the quantum computers that I'm aware of that have been built to date are called noisy intermediate scale quantum computers. Basically, they, they can, they're phenomenally intricate, impressive feats of science and technology, but they, they do these operations on individual qubits, which are kind of, if, I, if you think about a classical computer, it's a zero or a one, it's a yes or a no. A quantum bit is yes or a no and a whole bunch of flavors of maybe. And you kind of get them to do this dance together in this symphony of a computation uh, and they can, can figure out things that classical computers can't. When it's these noisy intermediate scale quantum computers, it's like the symphony kind of loses the thread. It's like there's no conductor to keep everybody on, on beat. And after you play uh, you know, a few measures of the music, all the instruments are all out of tune. There's no uh, you know, coherence. There's too much dissonance in the, the music. You can't understand what they're trying to play anymore. The idea of making a fault-tolerant quantum computer is somehow or another, you have a conductor there who's keeping everybody on beat, and you can, have, you can play for as long as you want. You can still figure out what the musical piece is supposed to be. An- another way of saying it is you combine a bunch of these noisy qubits together, have them all work together, uh, so you might have a hundred or a thousand of these noisy qubits work together to collectively create one kind of noise-free computational grade, what we call fault-tolerant qubit. And th- those are the kinds of machines we're interested in. What kind of time frames are you looking at as you talk to the three companies that you've decided to work with? I saw five years, but it looked like you had a 10-year time frame too. How's that all going to play out? The program is notionally five years long, but we're very flexible about that. One of the reasons we started this program was to have a vehicle where we could flexibly work with companies who had a real shot at getting to a what we call utility scale, a no-kidding, really useful, really big quantum computer. And so I think that timeline is our timeline to try to verify and validate what they're doing. I think this 10-year timeline is, like I said, we're flexible. We don't have hard dates. But ideally, we take five years to get a really good look at what they're doing, look under the hood, kick the tires. And at the end of five years, we'd be able to say that, okay, yeah, if we wanted to really build one of these giant, useful quantum computers, we think that it would work and that that process would take less than another five years. We don't have hard hard requirements on either of those dates. The real reason we're doing this is to try to figure out if a company or a university thinks that they have a surprising path to a no kidding, really big, useful quantum computer. We want to come in and work with you and see if uh, that that approach holds water because this this field has a lot of hype. And just because somebody says they're going to have a revolutionary quantum computer in eight years or ten years or fifteen years. Um, that's not enough reason to be sure that's going to happen. You really want to go in and take a really skeptical, rigorous look and and see who has a a viable approach and who doesn't. So I assume you've talked to these three companies a little bit now. How optimistic are you? So we just kicked off last month. We had our first big meetings last week. And I think one of the things you'll discover about DARPA, if we, you know, 
talk more as this program goes on is we are really skeptical and rigorous and by the book. And so I basically have nothing to say about how optimistic I am about their approach. I can say that at this point, other than they have really exciting approaches. They, they each have something about their, their approach that nobody else is doing that I think is really worth taking a careful look to see is there or there or there. So I'm incredibly exciting. I'm incredibly excited. I'm optimistic, which was your question, but I'm, I'm optimistic by nature. But that's very different from saying DERPA thinks this is going to work. Um, so can you offer me any specifics on what new exciting things they have, or, or is that not something you can get into? I can, Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I can talk about that. I think five years ago, if you had asked somebody, will these approaches, photonic quantum computers, uh, neutral atom quantum computers, or topological superconductors, be a viable approach to make a really big, really useful quantum computer, you would have gotten a lot of skepticism from your random quantum physicist you stopped on the street. And I think that there's good reasons for all of these approaches now to have a lot more optimism to say that some things about this seem crazy, but, you know, some things about this seem really good. This, this might really give us something we can't have from a different approach. Those things, I think, if we take them one at a time, because they're all totally different approaches. They're apples and oranges. The photonic approach, which is the approach from psi-quantum, photons are interesting. They have, a, they have some things that are great in that they don't really talk to the world they, they kind of photons are the tiniest piece of light you can get. They fly off and they do their own thing. And they're largely unaffected by whatever they're flying through, electric, magnetic fields, whatever, which is great because the outside world poking at a quantum computer with electric and magnetic fields is where things go sideways, as you said. So that's really attractive that you have something that can't be pushed off the rails by the outside world. Problem is photons also don't talk to each other. They ignore each other as much as they ignore the outside world, which if you want a computer to have gates that are, say, the state of one photon affects what happens with another photon, that's as big of a disadvantage as the first one was an advantage. And so you really need some very creative ways, if you're going to make this work, to overcome that seemingly significant obstacle. And how about the other two companies that you're working with? So the next one is Microsoft. So they have this topological superconducting approach. This has gotten this general approach has gotten a lot of bad press recently with some, you know, uh, people saying that certain, you know, uh, experimental demonstrations didn't work. But then Microsoft has had a bunch of announcements that they've made great progress. I think the short answer is, if they can make this work, this is a way to get individual superconducting qubits that are much lower noise through a really exotic uh, and beautiful piece of physics called topological protection that's really difficult to explain without jargon. And we want to go in and see if that works. And we, we have nothing to announce yet other than we're really excited to see if this will work. And then the last one, atom computing uses neutral atoms. Um, you probably read about ion trap quantum computers where they use the charge of a single atom to kind of confine it and play with it and get it to do quantum stuff. A neutral atom you trap with lasers, but it doesn't have a charge. I think 10 years ago, these didn't work very well. There was a lot of skepticism you'd ever be able to get them bigger and bigger. Several companies and universities have announced results just in the past few years, including some companies that are funded by the Honest program at DARPA that are making people take a hard second look about maybe this is a 
a really quickly scaling approach that we disregarded too quickly a while ago. And so I think for, for completely different reasons, we're really excited about all three approaches we're looking at. In terms of practical applications for the Department of Defense, talk to me a little bit about that. So this is one of my two programs about this uh, US2QC about is there a hardware path to make this work? Uh, another program I have called the Quantum Benchmarking Program is focused on exactly that question that you're asking. Um, and I think we're, we're skeptical about both of those problems and are dealing with them mostly separately. Dr. Joe Altapeter, Program Manager at DARPA, speaking with Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Check out Alex's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I uh, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in d- direct care. And and I will say, and on a, obviously we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, p- profound disabilities are are really um, you know we we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought well you know I'll take a look at it and see, see you know throw uh, send in my information, and lo and behold I I, I get hired, and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington D.C. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has, a, has a good story, like, it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, so often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he he faces everything with optimism. And, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of wash, wash your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. 
Um, and but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a- the athletes of Special Olympics that uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more, uh, we get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I, I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and uh, I mean, we work hard and you know, we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at special olympics no one's excluded you know no, right. no one's excluded yeah. everyone is equal at special olympics it, and you know in a country that's quite divided on so many lines politically and uh, socially uh, economically race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot but you go to special olympics and everyone's involved everyone's welcome everyone's equal and I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experienced the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics Ways to get involved, uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials. Uh, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I'd mentioned earlier, um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age. It's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think when you, when you go back to the founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do, uh, was to, to, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest 
people that you will meet and and uh and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is is how you'll learn it check us out uh you know uh, specialolympics.org on on our website uh that will link you to your local program you can follow through the the clicks of how to get involved and where what's closest to you you'll enjoy it i can promise you that well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll uh, talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.